This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. We're back out and about here in Washington, D.C. Bistro B, a place we've been before. Our host restaurant. Kevin Kramer, De- Republican Senator from the great state of North Dakota, is our guest. Kevin, good to see you. Thanks great for joining us. Great to see us. you. Thanks for the opportunity. So one thing you need to know. Yeah. Lots of people try to get to all 50 states. <laughs> I've gone I've to 48. <laughs> You've heard yeah, this. I've several times. The Dakotas <laughs> are, are my, the last two on my list. Well, we'll give you a good reason to come out. So I need to get out there. Yeah, you do. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us on podcast platforms. You're our earliest adopters. We appreciate that. Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, more than 70 radio stations across this great country, Paramount Plus and CBS News Streaming. Always great to have you with us. So, Senator, let's just start with some things that are heading toward the Senate's way mm. From the House, that's how it works. Yeah, that's how it works usually. Starting last night. So yeah. these are things just passed by the House. $28 million in appropriations to prevent a future infant formula shortage. House passed that yesterday. Twelve Republicans voted for that, so most Republicans were against it. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, this is the first I've heard of this particular bill. We obviously have a crisis, but I, I, what I don't like to do is I don't like to... I don't like to be presented with a binary up or down choice on a large appropriation, having never heard about it, having never seen a had a hearing, having never um, you know, marked up the bill. Um, we have a crisis. Our, there ought to be tools in place to deal with the crisis at the moment. I think the president's uh, at least trying to to ramp up production of those things. But so twenty eight billion dollars. We we have I mean, to stop million, this one. Million. million. Oh, twenty eight million. Twenty eight million. It surprises me that there's not twenty eight million dollars in somebody's account already. That and the, and that they don't Sometimes have. Sometimes it's pocket change here in well, Washington. Well, gosh, it, that's why I, when you said million, that doesn't even that sounds like a mistake. Um, that said. You know, if it's a simple authorization for an, for an existing pot of money somewhere, you know, I probably could do it. But I just, I'd like us to get back to regular order where we actually discuss things before we. The White House on announced that. yesterday it will use the Defense Production Act to boost supplies of infant formula. Are you in favor of that? You know, the, the Defense Production Act has become the, the, you know, the default tool for doing whatever needs to be done these days. If if, if it would work, I'm I'm fine with that. Uh, I just think we have to give the 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 private sector industries that already do this sort of thing, the right incentives to do them and do them. And if that incentive is a, is a, a carrot, great. If it's a stick that uh, might be necessary, let's do that. But is I, this I, a problem in North Dakota? It, it is. It is. Have a lot you heard of, from constituents? I have. Purpose? I've heard from constituents and, and it's become, I don't know if the problem's as big as sort of the panic in some respects. People are getting the formula, but they're having to do all the things that we hear about, you know. Facebook groups all and all that social media, exactly crowdsourcing. Right. That's exactly right. And I think in some parts of America where community is a little more, still more fashionable, people are helping each other. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in some places it's not quite that way. I don't know. Uh, North Dakota is pretty community oriented. You're on the Armed Services Committee. Yeah. I saw yesterday that military commissaries are limiting supplies that you can buy to prevent hoarding and actual buying more than you need. So this yeah. is filtering through every mar- aspect of American society. Yeah, and we're not used to rationalizing in the United States. Well, we're, we're used to we're, rationalizing, yeah. but not rationing. <laughs> I'm sorry, rationing. Thank you. Yeah, as soon as <laughs> we, I said, we, rationalize we rationalize a lot of things. Yeah, in this we, you and I will do that a lot in the next hour. Um, so no, we're not used to rationing, right? We're consumers. Right. No, we we're, are. We're consumers and we're producers, proud of it. and we are darn proud of it. And and that's okay in our in our free market capitalist system. Uh, I think our our 
consumption gives us a lot of leverage, you know, in, in the rest of the world in many cases. Um, given that we're, we're, our population is 5% and, and our, our consumption is 20%, but um, occasionally a crisis occurs. Mm-hmm. This is a crisis. The demand for formula is very specific. You know, everyone knows who they are. They're the most vulnerable citizens. And uh, it makes, it, it's fine, I think, that, that, that individual stores, outlets, chains, commissaries, um, find a way to, to manage it Sometimes well. a crisis will prov- provoke Congress to do something that it probably mm-hmm. should have done a long time ago. Another piece of legislation the House passed on this topic yes. is to give flexibility to mothers, women, infant and children under that program, right. WIC, yeah. to buy other formulas than just one kind of formula. That seems very commonsensical to me. It doesn't seem very profound, does it? <laughs> but that's, that's now become like a topic. I know, I know. And, Actually, and I asked myself, wait a minute, they didn't have flexibility before? It's interesting. We live at a time when um, you would be in favor of that. I'm I would sure. definitely be in favor of that. In fact, I prefer that that they always have that flexibility. That that should not be something they come to Congress for permission for. When you consider that the administrative state does a lot of things um, that they want to do, and in, in, in many cases the legislative branches acquiesced a lot of that flexibility and the, the authority, and then we complain about it later because we weren't prescriptive enough in the legislation we passed. I call that lazy. Um, and then now we come up with something where there's a true crisis where common sense doesn't seem to be allow, uh, allowed. Uh, and I don't know whether it is or it isn't allowed, per se. If they need that flexibility, we should give it to them. We should make it permanent. Another thing that the House passed yesterday that's coming to the Senate, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. This would establish in Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and the FBI specific teams to analyze scrutinize, provide biennial reports to Congress on domestic terrorism in America. You in favor of that? Well, I, you know, I, I worry a little bit about the term domestic terrorism. I mean, crime is crime. Violence is violence. It is illegal. It should be illegal. If we need to crack down more on it, we ought to. We ought to provide local communities with the resources and the training for their policing. We have, as you know, a police shortage, and we have a policing challenge in this country that ranges from, you know, to, too harsh a policing to what not have What are you nervous enough. about when you hear the phrase or the terminology domestic because, terrorism? Because terrorism means something. And, and domestic terrorism, I mean, we all know what domestic means. But what's the difference if it's a domestic terrorism issue or whether it's a gang matter or whether it's just violence breaking out? Um, so, I, you know, I'm willing to have the discussion, Major, but I don't like a Most major, Republicans in the House voted against this. Yeah, I would think so because it's, it, it, it empowers a bureaucracy more than a community. Policing is a local issue. It's a state issue. It is constitutionally and traditionally and, and um, statutorily a local issue. The federal government's role is to, to support, if it has a role at all, and we clearly do. Um, so just to grow the, the power of the FBI and the DOJ... Uh, what, know, what are you afraid could happen with the growing I think growth could, of that power? Yeah, what think, what are you afraid of? I think it could get politicized, that crime itself, crime itself has become somewhat politicized in, the, in our era. We can have honest dis- disagreements about, you know, priorities, but um, it's become such a political football that it seems to matter more in politics than it does on the streets. And I just think communities are better suited to, to, um, to meet that challenge. And em- empowering the Department of Justice would be one of the last things I'd be supportive of in just about every so situation. So if I hear you correctly, if, you're, if there's a domestic terrorism group within Department of Justice, you're nervous about monitoring online communications, other things that might fall into this category and then get the long arm of the federal government in somebody's house or community that you are not comfortable with. There is that. There's the constitutional personal privacy um, issues that that get cloudy in this very high-tech era that we live in. Um, But that said, what I also worry about is just the politicizing of the Department of Justice, which is, has happened, um, a, a Department of Justice that has got so much concentrated power that all of the other agencies of the government basically, you know, work for the Department of Justice, and and then they get to pick and choose, uh, and and will almost certainly, based on their own bias, what kind of groups are. are considered terrorists versus other kind of groups that do the exact same crimes. Um, they're, they're just exercising their First Amendment rights. I don't think they should, I don't think we could, should empower another political For agency. the benefit of my audience, do you believe yeah. the Trump Justice Department was politicized? I, I really, I really don't. I think when you okay. look at Bill Barr and the way he carried it out, um, had, he, had he politicized it, Donald Trump would be more pleased with him. 
probably a fair point. <laughs> Do you believe the Biden Justice Department, as it's currently constructed, is politicized now? Well, I... I do worry about it, to, to be honest. That's, you, that's you, different. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I, wanna, I do want to be careful because I do want to give benefit of the doubt to, to public servants um, that, that you know, have, are charged with our personal safety. Um, but, you know, picking and choosing which crimes are terrorism and which ones aren't can be a very political um, you know, decision, and I, I worry about it in, uh, in the Department of Justice. I think the fact that... Um, Merrick Garland is that was chosen to be the uh, be the attorney general uh, in in the aftermath of um, him being chosen to be a Supreme Court justice that didn't get that didn't get there in and of itself creates feels a, a little political. It, it to feels you. a little political. That is the voice of Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of the Takeout from Bistro B, our host restaurant, coming up in just one second. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We're back out and about in Washington, D.C. Peace, Joe B. Here for breakfast. Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, as our guest. Senator, um, open-ended question. Sure. You look at the massacre in Buffalo, what do you think? What do you draw yeah. from that? What I want, to, I want it in your own words. Yeah, I appreciate that question that way because I have pondered a lot. First of all, he, 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 first of all, it's such an awful, evil tragedy in my mind. I mean, it's such an awful, really evil act. And what makes it evil is, first of all, the taking of human life is in and of itself tragic and obviously violent and evil. The, the, the circumstances of this situation, the, 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 um, the shooter, his past, his comments... Um, his his white nationalism, racism, obvious racist um, adds to the evil, and that it just it, it illustrates a, a, a deep, deep evil in this individual person. One of the things I've thought a lot about, Major, because you get asked it a lot. Obviously, it's an obvious question of the day for policymakers. I I, I felt I feel like commenting much more, and I'm, don't get me wrong, we will because I can't resist. Um, almost diminishes just the, how awful the act itself was. Mm-hmm. When we start, whether it's excusing, rationalizing, explaining, it's like, no, this was a really, really bad, bad thing and really evil. And it's so heartbreaking to me that it's, it, it, it really, it, to be honest, I, 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 don't, I think I might as well just tell you. I mean, I, I wept a little bit when I heard about it because it, the, the circumstances were just so awful and, and prayed immediately, of course, for... You're not alone, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm Americans sure. across this country yeah. wept just as they wept after El Paso, right. just as they wept after Charleston, South Carolina, right. Dylan Root. And I wonder if you see any commonality between those because there is a wellspring of motivation that unites these three particular incidences. Yeah, it's interesting because... I never saw it in growing up in, in North Dakota. And so for me to, when, when I hear these stories and these instances and, and the words, real words of real people that, that spew this kind of racial and hate. And then carry it out and in a violent and, and, and way. It, it's, because it's a combination of things. Not because there are probably a lot of people that feel this way that don't carry it out in violent ways. And so, so you, when you get to the issue of mental illness, uh, I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't. This person has a very serious problem um, beyond beyond just racism, I would think. But this is what I mean by it gets clumsy when you start start explaining it because it sounds like you're somehow ex- excusing it, and I don't. Um, but so, just that very the, the very racist nature of it is hard for me to even wrap my mind around. Yet I believe it. It is. It's hard for me to fathom. At a personal level and a community level. Do you sympathize with those who willingly describe it as domestic terrorism because they feel it creates a terroristic mentality and a sense of trauma? I do. I do. 
um, empathize with that. I understand why they'd want that. Um, but again, I don't want to. Anytime you ch- change hate into something, you know, scientific or something psychological or something, you know, categorize it some way other than just blatant hate and evil. Th- that's what I mean by politicizing. You described yourself as a policymaker. As a policymaker, do you feel somewhat helpless in the face of what you just described as pure evil? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, as a policymaker, I feel like. Um, we, I have an advantage in some respects that I feel obligated to use. And it's not in, just in passing the law. It's in using the platform to both demonstrate and talk about um, the issue in an open format. My very, first, <laughs> my very first year in Congress, the first thing that I took up, the first public forum that I hosted was a, a forum on gun violence. Now, remember, I come from North Dakota, right? right. Where everyone owns guns, everyone's very, you know, responsible. I, 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 everybody's everybody. I shouldn't be such a... But they're comfortable around it. That's right. Um, and, and yet, you know, just sort of saying, hell no, we won't go, it, it isn't adequate. So w- what I did is I hosted a forum that included pastors, um, social workers, police officers, school officials... Uh, moms of uh, you know the, the activist moms all the way around and just had an open forum and then opened it up to a, a broader audience uh, to, to discuss the topic and for that a lot of people were you know gun gun activists and I I am a gun supporter um, were upset because you just you raised the issue and and I tried very hard and allowed a dialogue to, and allowed a dialogue and was respectful of another point of view totally and 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 I can think be politically hazardous these it days. it can be politically hazardous but shouldn't be but it can be but it can be but major that's part of why I'm here it's it's why I do talk radio town hall it's why I I have the advantage of having fewer than 800,000 constituents and I get to know them all pretty well mm-hmm. uh, and so you know intimacy with the people I work for and with is a, is a special thing that I don't take lightly but it does allow me to be transparent with them even reckless at times mm-hmm. um, they forgive me <laughs> and and I and I love them so but I just think as policymakers, the best thing we can do is allow the, the type of dialogue mm-hmm. not just you and me but uh, us mm-hmm. you know colleagues and, and rather than having a shouting match about you know the, the Second Amendment, which is not unimportant, but it's, you know. in in this dialogue space, yeah. uh, there are those who look at the postings. I will never call them manifestos. That gives them way too much credit. Yeah, right. They are postings. They are screeds. Yeah, there is a commonality about either replacers or invasion. Yeah, or the idea that white America is under operative threat by people who are not white. There's been a lot written in the last week that some within your party or who are supportive in general of the Republican Party mm-hmm. have given that kind of language more prominence, more visibility, mm-hmm. more acceptability. Yeah. Do you believe that's true and do you believe that's a problem and are you against it? I believe that it is. I, I believe that that is happening and I am against it. I, I'm sort of naturally against most conspiracy theories, to be honest with you. Major, I just I think in our hyper media you know world um, where everybody gets to choose the lane that they mm-hmm. not only that they believe in but then that they go to for all of their information, there's just too much opportunity to elevate anger as opposed to de-escalate um, anger, and that's re- it really affected our ability to communicate and to, to dialogue. Um, that said. Um, yeah, no, I'm against it, and I grieve it. And I, I, we, I, I think this gets to my point of I think those of us that have a, a larger platform are obligated um, morally to de-escalate. Um, one of my best friends in the House was was David Scott, um, a, a, a black Democrat from uh, Georgia, from Atlanta, and I won't tell the whole story about how we became such good friends, but. He, he he's such a compelling personality to me, and such an eloquent speaker. And he supported my legislation to to greenlight the uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. That's how I met him. Is he got up to take three minutes from the opposition's time on the floor to advocate for the bill that I had introduced, talking about labor. And I'm thinking, okay, I think I'm supposed to be against half of this stuff, but I, <laughs> you know, he's got a little more moral authority than me. Mm. So anyway. I say all that because I, I, this is where I think our obligation is, is to, 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 to be a demonstration mm-hmm. uh, as, as leaders um, to a more civil way of, uh, way of dialoguing. Did you find anything objectionable about President Biden's comments in Buffalo that 
White supremacy is a poison, and there are some people in America who use it for power and profit. Oh, I think that the ability for people to use marginalization to drive wedges and actually profit from, is, from it is fairly obvious in a lot of ways. But I don't, it's, not, it's not confined to just you know, white supremacists. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I didn't go, but a number of my colleagues did. They went to the uh, correspondence dinner here in town where um, you know, one of your colleagues or a peer uh, retired, uh, received a Lifetime Achievement Award. She's a, she's a, a, a black woman, former you know, anchor on a major network who called out the person that was sitting right next to her moments earlier at the dinner uh, because he's a white male congressman and said, the day of the white male is coming to an end. Your days are numbered. You're soon to be the minority. And, and pointing this out, and several journalists apologized on her behalf and, and organizers and several members of the Democratic caucus did. So we've, that, that's not helpful. None of this is helpful. And yet, I know many people that get along just fine. We j- Here's the thing. You, you and I are having this talk. These media outlets that gravitate one way or the other and have a small lane, they're part of the problem. They're part of the problem. So... When I, I love going on shows with my Democratic colleagues, and I love surprising Chuck Todd when he says, well, you guys sort of sound the same. You know? <laughs> I said, well, that's because you, you don't highlight the same very often. That is the voice of Kevin Kramer, Republican <laughs> from North Dakota. And as all, everyone knows who is a le- regular viewer or listener of this show, right, center, and left, always welcome at the table. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout in just one second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News... This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Again, our thanks to Bistro B, our host restaurant, for breakfast. Uh, the omelet is here. Senator Kevin Kramer <laughs> is enjoying it. I'm going to get to my berries and toast in due course. Uh, during the break, we were talking about something, and I want to give you a chance to talk about it. So everyone in America who pays attention to politics, and you're listening and watching this show, which means we know you are, <laughs> know all about the big words, polarization, mm-hmm. division, sense of separateness, alienation. All, we all know that. It's like become part of our marrow, whether it needs to be or not. We've absorbed all that. But you told me during the break you think that, that if we want to call it a fever, and that may be metaphorically downplaying it, mm. can and will break. I that, do. I, I you are the, one of the first people yeah. in the last three or four years who I've talked to who's been optimistic about this. Why? I guess because I've been in the Senate now for three years, and um, we're, the Senate is famous, of course, for being cordial, mm-hmm. for congeniality. Um, even though there's a little theatrics associated with some of that, right. I mean, senators are talkers after all. And um, but there's the, but relationships are really really important, and the Senate was designed for that. I mean, in a fifty fifty Senate, it's like the perfect picture, right? And and when you need 60, you can't burn bridges because you run out of bridges pretty fast yep. in the Senate. Yep. Um, it, so it's a special place in that regard. And I see lots of valuable relationships. I think the challenge is that the, that, that the good relationships that lead to good things don't get much coverage. They're not interesting to the entertainment media. Mm-hmm. No doubt. They are here. Right. So how do we get it better? Secondly, <laughs> I wonder if your constituents broadly, not yours, yeah. but Republican and yeah, Democratic yeah. constituents yeah. will let you do that. Because it's my sense, Senator, that one of the reasons aff- the willingness to be offended, the mm. willingness to strike back at a perceived offense, is reflective of what 
base partisans in both parties demand yeah. of people that they elect. So therein lies the problem. A lot of people blame us for the polarization, us being members of Congress, to which I say we are a perfect reflection of the people we work for. And they're on your neck all the time. All the time. To fight harder, scream louder, and punch back more aggressively. No question. And, and they prefer spectacular um, failure to humble and patient um, success. That said, what I try to do, and what I think a lot of my colleagues aren't willing to do is talk to those people as well as listen to them. That communication, even with your constituents, is a two-way street. Um, whether you're collecting political capital with, with your colleagues that you then spend judiciously on something mm -hmm. that matters, um, or whether you're building political capital with your constituents by listening and, and responding, um, or spending a little bit to also persuade and influence. And I think a lot of members have become lazy with regard to the influencing and persuasion, persuasion, persuading part of our job with our constituents. It's hard work. It's hard to put a couple of hours a week into talk radio where you just don't filter the calls and take them and respond to them. It's a very easy speech when from the moment you say hello, everyone is nodding. Right. It is a much harder speech from the moment you say hello, no one nods, and you know they don't want to nod. Yeah. But to get them to nod by the end of your speech, that's hard. That's hard. It and, is I, and it seems to me to be a less appreciated art. Persuasion. I agree. I, I think it is, but it's, not, but it's not lost forever. Because I think, I, I have confidence that the American people are going to tire of this as well. Uh, I have uh, a sense that there is a phrase that might gain traction, the exhausted majority. Yeah. Perhaps. That's a, I like that phrase, the exhausted majority. Because there are a lot of people on the sidelines. I'll just give you a good example. I help, you know, I, I'm the ranking Republican on the Environment and Public Works Subcommittee on Transportation and Infrastructure. Um, we wrote the original transportation bill that be, became the base for the larger bill, not just transportation, but water infrastructure as well. And so that really became the base of the, the compromise that became the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Joe Biden gets to take credit for because he signed it, mm -hmm. even though it, it looked nothing like his, but we all, it took a team. Obviously, there were a lot of Republicans, including former President Trump, who didn't like it. He called me a couple of times to express that. But even my discussions with him were, you know, eventually very friendly. We had a disagreement. When I go on my, when I do my talk radio town halls in North Dakota, a lot of the, and it's largely conservative radio stations, although not exclusively, but people will call in and they're, they're angry because I voted for it because it was Biden's bill, right? right. And then I describe it and then people calm down a little bit. But when I, go to, when I go shopping at the hardware store or, or Walmart or the grocery store, the only people that talk about it to me thank me for it. And so th this is what I mean by, you know, if you listen too much to one side uh, you know, on, of the media or one side through the media, um, you, you get a very different picture of America than when you go shopping at the mall. I want to talk to you about Ukraine for a second. Sure. Uh, there's going to be a vote, I believe, later today. We're recording this on Thursday. Jake, what's the uh, date? Uh, May 19th. So by the time you hear this, the vote will probably have already occurred. Are you right. going to vote for the $40 billion for Ukraine, humanitarian military? I am going to vote for the, the aid. They need it. They need it quickly. Um, but, I, but I am protesting how we got here again. Once again, $40 billion uh, well, $33 billion turned into $40 billion, uh, without a single hearing, without a single discussion, without a markup in any appropriations. And in the course of hours and days, we sort of were given this binary choice. Do you support U Ukraine or do you not? And so <clears throat> I'm going to vote for it because they need it. But we really have to get back to a more regular order. Speaking of, court, you know, of congeniality. I mean, some Republicans uh, voted against it in the House. Yeah. Some will vote against it in the Senate. Uh, Mike Braun, one of your colleagues who's been on the show, said with gas prices, shortages, walloping Americans, he can't support $40 billion that's not offset or taken from other previously authorized funds. Are you in I, any way sympathetic to that argument? I am very sympathetic to that argument, but, but the bigger issue of the moment is... That's you, not the choice. That's not the choice. There's only that, one choice. That's precisely right. And, and you also remember, as Audubon Bismarck, the, the, uh, you know, the namesake of, of our capital city in North Dakota, once said, politics is the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. And so... The possible right now is aid for Ukraine. 
And there's a, a need for it, and we have to do it. In my view, we have an obligation because it's better for America if Ukraine wins this war than than if they lose this war. There's a lot of consequences, including government spending down the road. Um, so, so you you do. I, I'm sympathetic to Mike and others that feel this way. I'm sip, sympathetic to those who say, yeah, but we have to take care of the southern border. Yes, we do. But that's not one of the options either. This is possible and it's important. So I want you to tell my audience about a kind of fascinating story that involves one of your constituents who, as I understand it, from your very able staff, <laughs> is in custody in Ukraine yeah. over a dispute that predated the Russian invasion. What's going on there? So this is a farmer from of Ukrainian um, heritage, actually. And for North Dakotans, we have a, a lot of Ukrainians. Actually, we, what we have is a lot of Germans from Russia. And Russia at the time was Ukraine. They, were, they escaped one tyranny to another right. and then came to, to the United States. And they, a lot of them settled in North Dakota. And if you go to Ukraine and you go to North Dakota, you, you're not sure which of the two you're in at, at any given time, particularly when there's a high wheat and, and a lot of uh, sunflowers. And it's a very similar background. So he's a farmer. He went to visit his, his um, homeland, so to speak, even though he had never been there and um, fell in love with the land and saw opportunities he didn't have in North Dakota um, to, to farm. And so he, he farms there. And he ended up in this dispute with a, with a partner that he... Um, perhaps carelessly took on and uh, and some embezzlement and whatnot anyway long story short he ends up uh, being arrested for uh, a conspiracy to kill this partner who had now become the minister of agriculture in ukraine i see so you so it's a it's quite a tale anyway all of that there's a lot of questions i have a lot of not just questions doubts about the efficacy of the charges um, Would you say he's being unlawfully detained? I think he is. I, I believe that he is. And I've been to Ukraine to visit him in G- mid-January. I visited him in his jail cell. Um, got you know his versions of the story, of course, prayed with him, and have been negotiating uh, ever since. It seems like you could get the president on the phone and ask him about this. Uh, I mean, there's a lot at stake right now between our two countries. seems like there could be a conversation about this, and this could be smoothed out. Well, I, I, yes. He is one farmer, uh, and, and Major, what I would just say, and then wrap it up, because I don't want to discuss the negotiation any further, just because mm. um, it's delicate. It's I understand. delicate. He's the main, uh, my main concern, and his family doesn't want uh, where you know his current status discussed publicly just yet. Um, but the leverage of uh, that we have, uh, you know, we Americans, me with a vote with Ukraine, is not. Irrelevant, or um, but it also doesn't need to be stated, mm-hmm. and I don't. Mm-hmm. If, if you understand what I right. mean, yeah. that would be crass. It would be crass if it not might Ill- not be. Effective. It might even be illegal. It might not even be legal. But 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 let's just say that we have a very open relationship at the very top of the government. To be continued. To be continued. That yeah. is the voice of Kevin Kramer. I'm Major Garrett Bistro B is our host. Restaurant segment for the takeout in just one moment. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Bistro B is our host restaurant, Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota. So, Senator is our special guest. We haven't talked about abortion yet. Uh. There was a leaked draft majority opinion. You've heard about it. Everyone in the country has heard about it. Right. That appears to be the direction the Supreme Court is heading. If it is, whenever it comes, how fundamentally will America change after that decision is released? Yeah, I, I don't know that America itself changes fundamentally. It, it'll be a it'll be a firestorm for for a short time, um, but then I think as things settle down, um, states that favor abortion will have will allow abortions, and states that don't won't. As they did before Roe. As they did before Roe. And I think that, you know, and maybe, maybe, maybe there will even be a little bit of migration, I don't know, as a result of that. But at the end of the day, 
yeah, well, it'll go back and... and um, Do you believe that reversal mm-hmm. of a constitutionally established right mm-hmm. will materially and detrimentally affect women in America? I do not. You do? Well, tell do me why not. not. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm very pro-life because I believe that life begins at conception. I think that all life is precious and all life deserves protection, including mothers' lives, including um, the elderly's lives. I, I will tell you that one of the uh, um, evolutions in my thinking about life itself is that <clears throat> I no longer support the death penalty as a means of, of uh, punishment. I, I used to. And I, over the course of time, the last couple of decades at least, you know, it's probably been 20 years at least since I made this decision in my own heart, is that if, if I believe that it's not okay to take a life, at, you know, before birth, why would I believe that it's okay to take a life? Granted, one's innocent, one is not, but it's still a human life. It's still the state. It's, it is. It's, that's exactly it's state right. Power. It's state power to take life. And um, I personally don't think it's even effective. So do effective, you believe the state has a vested interest in life at conception, not I, at any number of weeks? Well, so important point. That is my personal belief. But I also understand, again, back to the art of the, the possible, uh, this, th- these, th- this is part of the problem, Major, is that Roe v. Wade sort of comes down at the moment, at least, to are you for or are you against? But most people are neither, they're neither in w- w- deep in one corner or deep in the other corner. They're at some you know, increment in between. If you sift through the polling data, right. most Americans, as I read the polling data, mm-hmm. don't want to outlaw it entirely, right. but are not comfortable after the first trimester. They right. simply are not. Right. And they are visibly opposed in the third trimester right. and pretty much heavily opposed second trimester. Right. So, so that will all be reflected in the 50 states mm-hmm. you know, if Roe gets overturned. And I think that's entirely appropriate. I, again, I still personally believe in, you know, that, that life is to be protected. But Do you believe Roe was wrongly decided? Yeah, you know, I, I'm neither. That it was the, that the, because the, the argument against it is that the court interposed itself, right. got in the way. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg made this observation right. that the court short-circuited a process that was being dealt with at the state level. And that had that basically created a constitutional right, but also froze the argument right. in on in helpful ways. So I'm just curious I, I, what your I thought think that's is. That's exactly on that. right. I'm not. A, I always like to use the disclaimer. I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. Um, but as a, a, looks to me like a clear reading of it is exactly that that the court imposed itself. And this is the thing that I object the most about courts. You know, I've had the opportunity now to vote on two Supreme Court nominees, Amy Coney Barrett and now Judge Brown Jackson. And in both cases, the, the only area that I question them on is their belief in um, states' rights and, and cooperative federalism and the growth of the, the federal state. And they both have very different views, as you know, might know. I never ask them about abortion because if they answer the fundamental issue of states' rights and the Constitution's limits on federal um, government, then they're going to get all the other things pretty much right. Um, that said... As I look at Roe, yeah, I think it was wrongful. I think the Supreme Court did impose and, and, and frankly, made the whole thing up. And it's never been settled. While it's been settled by the court, it's never been settled in American culture. In fact, it's if anything, it's you know we've we've shifted more and more because of science, because of lots of reasons. Um, to be a more pro-life nation. So, no, I think the states will be a reflection of just that scope that you Once just Once the decision comes down, do you believe it will materially affect the politics of the midterm elections? I don't think it will. It might fire up a Democratic base a little bit, but, you know, pro-life activists are indeed activists and always have been. So if you're a one, if you're a one issue voter, there's a good chance you're already in your lane and you're probably, you're probably pretty um, active at voting. The, one of the reasons it won't change the midterm politics very much is because the midterm politics are going to be determined by the other really awful things going on in people's lives every single day when they go shopping, when they fill their car with gas. Inflation. Inflation. Inflation, inflation, inflation. Do you believe Republicans will take control of the Senate after the midterm elections? I do. I, I really do. I, I don't even. I think we're down to maybe one competitive incumbency in, in, on the Republican in, on the side. Republican side. And I Wisconsin. Think, yeah, I, that exactly. And and Ron Johnson's always been, um, you know, from his very first run, has always been vulnerable, and he always wins. And I think he will this time. But 
setting that one aside, I think the rest are ours to win, and we will. In this climate in particular, I think the pickups are obvious where, where, they're, where they're possible, and I think, again, in this climate, um, we'll take the... So take you're the counting majority. Pennsylvania? I am. What else? Well, I think we will win Ohio. Georgia? Uh, Georgia. We'll, I think we take Georgia back. I think you know Arizona's certainly in play. Nevada. Um, Nevada is probably one of our one of our, if not our best, opportunity for a pickup. That's four right there. That's four right there. You you have um, um, Maggie Hassan uh, up in New Hampshire is is vulnerable. And don't have Chris Sununu there though. We don't have Chris Sununu. I, I mean. So there are a couple of options. Take Arizona as an example. They have a governor as well, Doug Ducey, who's very popular, Chris Sununu, popular in New Hampshire. Those probably would have made those pickups certainly easier, if not really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have good candidates vying in, in those other places. Should too. Donald Trump be the Republican nominee in 2024? Well, it, should he be? If he wants to be and he runs, uh, if he wants to be, I think there's a very good chance he will be. Um, it's a different question. Though. It is a different question, and I, because I think as I look at the polling he, he data, he does win if he if he's the nominee. Today. Republicans will vote for him. Yeah, but they're about fifty fifty on whether or not he should run and be the nominee. Yeah, yeah, right. Where are you? I I would love to have four more years with Donald Trump. Quite honestly, I'm pretty close to him, as you know. I, I was very active in his campaign. I supported him early in the House, and um, I would I would love to have him start knowing what he knows now. Um, start taking down the. Uh, the bureaucracy on day one rather than sort of trusting it. Um, but at the same time, I think America, you know, would like a fresh start and maybe a Mike Pompeo would, would be a... There are lots of others who would vie for that nomination there are lots of if others he doesn't who would. run. There are, but there are, there are lots of others. Um, the reason I even mentioned Mike is because I think Mike Pompeo is the most... He, he's got the, the Trump doctrine down. People, he's believable on it. He understands it. He supports it himself. He's very loyal to, to President Trump. Um, and importantly, his name is not Donald Trump. But he also has a lot of other skills. I mean, his, his understanding of international affairs, his understanding of national defense at a time when that's, it has heightened importance. Um, I, I haven't endorsed anybody major, but I've only named one. <laughs> I, I picked up you on picked that. Up on that. I picked up astute. on that, Senator. That is the voice of Senator Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota. I'm Major Garrett. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming and listening on the podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. See you next week. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Bistro B is our host restaurant. We thank them as always. Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota. Senator is our guest. Two quick issues before we get to the fun and games. Who won the 2020 presidential election? I don't know. I just caught Chuck Schumer's eye. So, oh, really? Yeah. Chuck so, yeah, wow, yeah, Chuck yeah. Schumer's here. That's yeah. what happens. When the, when the takeout shows up, big people begin to hover. They just need to be around it. Okay? Just understand a, that, ladies and gentlemen. It's a gravitational force. Exactly. Okay, what did you ask me? I'm sorry. Who won the 2020 presidential election? Well, that's. I love when you ask that question. I love when people ask that question because it's not a hard question to answer. It isn't. I, I, you know, because he's sitting in the Oval Office, right? right? What's Joe, his name? Joe Biden won the election. Um, he was sworn in. Correct. Uh, I, I, uh, I voted to certify. Correct. Um, it's. I, I don't know why we continue to. Some people continue to have this fight. Other than what? to, pre- other than to prevent confusion going forward, which I think is a noble cause. Right, but someone is someone you like. Former yeah. President Trump continues right. to chew on this desiccated bone of a fraudulent election. And it wasn't. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Full stop. Right. Well, first of all, if, 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 
there likely was fraud. Um, I think there is in every election, and this one provided more opportunity than most. But at the end of the day, the election was decided for Joe Biden, and I think rightfully so. Um, I I voted against him, but... um, Okay, good. So I think... I I appreciate that answer. I I very much appreciate that answer. I really do. You're from a small state. Mm -hmm. In this country in the last decade, there has been more conversation about the Electoral College than any time I can remember. Yes. And there are those who find it defective, uh-huh. anti-democratic. Yeah. As a small state senator, yeah. you are deeply invested, I'm going to assume, yeah. in the Electoral College. Explain or give your defense of it before we get to fun and games. Yeah, so g- great question because um, I tell I give this little history lesson, this civics lesson to all of the students that come to see me, and I get to see them all. I see hundreds they of them. They probably ask you about this in ways they didn't I, a decade well, if, ago. If they don't, they, I, if they don't, I bring it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right; it is on, it's on their minds. On their minds, and I always tell them. And, and the United States Senate, similarly, having served as the only member from North Dakota in the House of Representatives out of 435, and now having equal a, a power to you know. Chuck Schumer and, mm-hmm. and Kirsten Gillibrand, I explained to them why the Electoral College in the Senate is so important. And that is that um, it ensures that every person running for president or who becomes president has some, op- some political obligation to every one of us, not to just a few of us. And our founders saw that. They knew that the day could come when a rectangular state in the middle of the North American continent, far from Virginia, um, you know, could get run over by New York or Boston, and they didn't want that to happen. So they created the Senate and they created the Electoral College. The great, the, the important thing for for me and when I talk to students is what's what's great is that that gives us dis, not just equal power but disproportionate as individuals. So so I t- I say to these two hundred students in front of me on the Capitol steps, I said, if Chuck Schumer walks by or Ted Cruz walks by, you need to know they don't get to meet with their students. Not that they wouldn't love to, and that they wouldn't benefit from it. They just can't. There are too many of too them. Too many. But I get to. What that means is you have disproportionate influence over the affairs so, of the country. So you your, accept one of the allegations that there's disproportionate I do, power. I do. And you're like, okay. And that's good for America. Those students in New York that don't get to meet with Chuck Schumer benefit from the students in North Dakota who get to meet with their their United States senator. And so, yeah, but our founders knew that. They baked that in because they knew the day would come when there could be a gross imbalance if we weren't if we didn't have a structure that supported remember even the senate wasn't look, a sh- our founders, certainty uh, had 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 flaws there was For one sure. built into the constitution itself there, but it's one of true. the things that they reasonably justifiably were afraid of were concentrations of power a fact. that would be misused that's right and whatever you think of the electoral college one of the truisms around it is that it distributes power that's right in a way that cannot be ignored that's a fact it's pretty obvious, isn't it? When presidents, when presidents win without the popular vote, um, the Electoral College has done its, its business. It's done and its you don't job. consider that necessarily a defect? I do not at all. Because, again, concentrated power in a particular geographical area, which has, as its logical conclusion, a particular demographic or a particular you know, philosophy. And one thing the founders did really well was distribute power. They distributed it in the three co-equal branches. They distributed it even after the great debate um, to two, two, you know, two uh, chambers. Mm-hmm. Um, when they couldn't pick a House of Lords or a House of Commons, they chose a House of Representatives and a Senate. And so they knew what they were doing. They did it on purpose, and it's, it's spectacular. All right, fun and games now. Uh-oh. We have uh, three threshold questions on this program. In our sixth year, later this year, we'll have our 300th episode, which oh, I'm wow. very proud of. And everyone gets these three That's questions. Cool. Yes. Yeah. So uh, take these in whatever order you prefer. Sure. Knowing that Chuck Schumer is listening yeah, right over there. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, reading my All-time lips. favorite movie, most influential book in your life, and you're in North Dakota, a beautiful place, and you're on a long drive. Yeah. What music's on the radio? Because you love that music the most. Okay. So my, my favorite movie of all time was Chariots of Fire. Uh, Chariots of Fire, um, you know, a, a book of religious conviction and brotherhood between, um, you know, Two faiths, two men of two faiths with incredible talent. Um, just a, a brilliant movie about a real event uh, in Eric Little. Um, Hell of a soundtrack, too. Let's it's a really that. great soundtrack. <laughs> uh, and then, um, so when I'm traveling across North Dakota, I listen to contemporary Christian music. And I, I do it in a couple of ways. I'll, I'll either, you know, stream my mm-hmm. you know, my favorite streaming channels, uh, which, which gives me exactly what I want, of course, or I'll play my Christian parade um, <laughs> file. Um, 
which is all real high energy um, contemporary Christian music, worship music uh, type, or or I'll even you know maybe find something unique. Um, and then, what was the other question? Most influential book. Most influential book, of course, is, is, is the Bible. Um, I love it. I don't read it often enough. I love studying it. Um, cover to cover, it's, it's the, the book of life. With Chuck Schumer hovering just over my right <laughs> shoulder, I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, has been our special guest. Thanks for the conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. We'll Thanks see you around Capitol Center. You see will. you next week, everyone. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.